Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, what are you like with boundaries? We'll be hearing about the importance of saying no with business coach Virginia Foley. While you don't need a degree in nutrition to understand food labels with nutritional therapist with natural life with Sarah Burton, and Dublin will host the largest global gathering of policymakers on the topic of culture next week. I'll be chatting to the professor who'll address the importance of arts and culture for our health and well-being and why policy should reflect this. So what sort of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, there's still a heavy feeling in Dublin and across the country this morning. To see such insanity and destruction on our streets is frightening and saddening. When the voice of hatred gets loud, the voice of love, leadership and inclusion needs to get louder. There is an anger in the air, perhaps about the housing crisis, perhaps about the cost of living, perhaps about worrying for the future. But it is misdirected and it's wrong. I do still believe that there is more good than bad in this world. But for real change to take place, we need to speak out and we need to speak up. So when you witness racism, a comment about a taxi driver with a different colour skin to you or one about school places for refugees, call it out. Not with aggression, but don't allow it as this is a spark that grows. I'm not going to take the time to explain why we need an inclusive society. I've met a lot of listeners to this show over the last while and I know most of you fully get it. But let's get louder about what we believe in. I was at a school in Tume during the week giving a health and wellness talk to mothers of the students, many from different countries looking to connect with each other and to build a community. And we spoke about differences in our cultures, such as the different foods we might cook. And we also spoke about things that are universal, like squabbling kids or fussy eaters and the struggling with putting our self-care higher on the priority list. It's a morning that will stay with me, that power of human connection. There really is more good than bad in this world. And Turn To Me, a national mental health charity, has tripled the number of free counselling sessions available to the public this weekend following the riots in Dublin. So if you want to get in contact with them, they re- They run free support groups on depression, anxiety and grief every week throughout the year. And they understand that even watching videos of what went on is going to have people's stress and anxiety levels up. And that is 100% what they are there for. You can go to turntome.ie. So it's turn the number to me.ie. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Dublin is hosting the Global Culture Summit this week, where 500 delegates and over 100 speakers from across the world will gather to discuss how culture is an integral part of sustainable cities. Daisy Fancourt is Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at University College London, and she'll be speaking at the Culture, Health and Wellbeing session. She joins me on the line now. Daisy, how are you? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be speaking. Can you tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Global Culture Summit? So I'm going to be speaking, giving a keynote as part of the summit, looking at the impact that culture has for health and well-being. So we're going to be discussing why it's so important to have societies that are full of arts and culture for supporting our health. And for people, sometimes culture can feel like an abstract term. What, What do we mean when we say that? 
It's got lots of different meanings. I'm going to be looking particularly at arts and cultural engagement. So this is anything from making or engaging with arts yourself to going to cultural venues and events or visiting heritage sites. So it's looking at that uh, act of engaging in the arts and culture and what that means for individuals and for societies. You were author of a report created for the World Health Organization. It's actually the biggest piece of research looking at this impact of participation and culture and creativity on our health and well-being. Tell us a little bit about that report. So the World Health Organization wanted to have an evidence report trying to see what research has actually been done about the ways that the arts affect our health. So my team and I carried out this research for them and identified over 5,000 different research articles from the last few decades, showing the role that the arts can play both in the management of physical and mental illness, sometimes even as a form of treatment, but also in the broader topics of health promotion and prevention of ill health. And we really saw the arts playing a very broad and encompassing role in supporting the health of entire societies. And that's something that can be traced across history, as well as something that's clearly still happening today. And how is it doing that? How is it improving in the management and treatment of illness across a lifespan? Well, for example, we see that engaging in the arts uh, is associated with a lower risk of developing mental illnesses like depression across your life course, as well as a lower risk of developing age-related problems like frailty, physical decline, chronic pain, uh, Alzheimer's and dementias. And then for people who actually do develop these conditions, we also see that the arts can support both in terms of psychologically helping with the management of symptoms and resilience and coping, biologically actually affecting our hormones, our immune function, the physical functioning of our bodies and our brains, socially helping us with bonding, enhancing social cohesion, which are fundamental aspects of our health and well-being, and behaviourally even affecting us in terms of the other health behaviours that we engage in, helping us to feel more motivated and have drive within our lives to live healthier lives as well. This may be outside of the, the realms of the report, but what about how accessible arts and culture is? To, to many, it, it can be something that only the privileged can afford, especially in a cost of, of living crisis. Is that something that the summit is going to look at to make sure that everybody can get access to arts and culture? Very much so. And of course, that's a major problem because not only do we have unequal access to the arts, But actually, the very people who often find it less easy to access the arts are those same people who are at greater risk of mental and physical health problems. So we actually even there's even an argument that this unequal access to the arts is exacerbating the health inequalities that we see within our society. So that's why it's so vital that we actually address this issue of access. And there are some wonderful programs that are going on looking at this, including schemes like social prescribing that attempt to refer people through to the arts when they're presenting to doctors or other professionals with mental or physical health needs. But this work is one of the core themes that's going to be highlighted in the conference happening so that we can be discussing how we can remove those barriers to access. And it's interesting that Dublin is is hosting the summit because here in Dublin there's a number of campaigns around the number of hotels that are being built here in the city and um, buy to to rent apartments that are really kind of pushing out the the culture spaces and, and the chances for there to be free cultural events. And I'm sure this is something that's happening 
in cities across the world as our population grows. So is that something that the summit is, is hoping to look at? Yes, we're going to be looking at very wide-ranging issues. And in fact, previously I've spoken at other events that have looked at things like city and urban planning and the the importance of actually building artistic spaces into the way that we're designing uh, new new living areas. But of course, it's a huge challenge because not everybody, not all the different stakeholders involved, uh, recognise how vital it is to have these spaces. And often what we find is people only appreciate arts and cultural venues when they've vanished and they're now recognising what their loss means. We spoke about um, accessibility and, and we were speaking, I suppose, on a more financial level that perhaps arts and culture should not be seen as a luxury. It should be seen more as a necessity. Um, what about neurodiversity? Is arts and culture speaking to the neurodiverse and are we making sure that people of all abilities can get access to arts and culture? What we think of as arts and culture, people often tend to fall back on the sort of traditional activities, you know, high arts of going to museums and concerts and galleries and things. But actually, contemporary definitions of arts and culture include a much broader range of things, including online-based activities like um, music streaming and music co-production, the development of animations and visual artworks online as well. And these kinds of arts uh, are one of the many examples of new art forms that have really grown in the past couple of decades, but have been providing additional opportunities for different demographics to engage, including people who are neurodiverse. One of the big challenges is to make sure that we genuinely appreciate that these are new art forms and that we include them in our definitions when we're conducting research so we don't fall back on perhaps the more hierarchical, old-fashioned, high art, low art definitions that people are often used to hearing about. Um, but we're, we're seeing increasingly that, that this work is spreading and also that there are arts organisations developing work specifically for people who are neurodiverse or who have other uh, mental or physical health conditions that mean they might not be able to engage in other kinds of more traditional art forms. I thought it was interesting at the start of, of your report for the World Health Organization that you covered the abbreviations that would be used throughout the report and in it is autistic spectrum disorder, cardiovascular disease, the LGBTQ plus community, Parkinson's disease and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I just even think in, in, in that small, helpful abbreviation note, it shows the span of the connection of arts and culture to a range of different illnesses or ways of living and how that can help. And maybe we could touch on even one of them. What about cardiovascular disease and its connection to the arts and health and well-being? Well, cardiovascular diseases uh, diseases, uh, often involve stress-related pathways and inflammatory pathways. And these are actually pathways that the arts are really effective at tackling. I think pretty much everybody who does anything artistic will say they felt relaxed by what they do. Even listening to music has that effect. And we see this in research studies showing physically, physiologically, what's happening to people, including reductions in blood pressure and heart rate, changes in people's breathing, changes in the levels of stress hormones that they're experiencing, uh, as well as changes in terms of their brains when they're engaging. Uh, And these physiological changes are are, uh, part of the very important mechanisms that link arts engagement 
through to cardiovascular diseases. And we've got very interesting projects now ongoing with hospitals, with different patient groups, looking at how we can design arts programs that really make the most of those mechanisms to support people who are living with those conditions. So how can we connect then emerging policies and programs with people? This is a really crucial question we're going to be looking at in the conference. So uh, there's often a, a bit of a challenge in terms of how you actually design policies that are going to have real like, live experience for individuals in their day-to-day lives. And this is a real opportunity when we're coming together for this conference to discuss the kinds of policies and practices that work well and how best practice can be shared between countries too. What has been brilliant to see in the last few years is the number of networks on arts and health that have been developing all around the world and the amount of sharing of this practice that's been going on. And a lot of this work is quite grassroots. It's often delivered by individuals and community-based organisations. But these kinds of networks, like the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which operates across the UK, have been fantastic in bringing all of that together and helping the people to form uh, relationships and develop the work that they're doing. You're also going to be making some recommendations so that local and regional governments can better implement programmes that will improve ultimately the quality of life of citizens. Can you touch on even a couple of them? Well, these different recommendations look at different levels. So, for example, within education, one of the core recommendations is that every young person has the opportunity to engage in arts and culture. And this is really important. This is happening through schools because we know that outside of schools, there is this social gradient and participation in arts and culture. It's often determined quite a bit by what your parents do and what they themselves did in their childhoods. So it can transmit through generations. But schools provide more of an even playing field for people to get involved with the arts. But what we do often see, unfortunately, is that arts subjects can be uh, degraded or downvalued within schools, perhaps in comparison to STEM subjects. Uh, So we're calling for the arts to be recognised as vital within schools, both to young people's health and well-being immediately, but also to their longer life engagement. Children who engage in the arts are dramatically more likely to engage as adults than those children who don't have those same early life opportunities. Because I suppose ultimately it's so important that we go beyond talking about these things to actually doing, but I suppose it has to start with with the research, it has to start with the looking at that and the, and the talking about it before the actions can be taken. But how do we ensure that it actually happens and change comes about? Well, I'd say change already is coming about. When we look around the world, there have been some fantastic programmes that have been rolling out, actually implementing this, uh, implementing uh, increased engagement in the arts from more diverse populations. Um, so uh, this work is already happening. I think part of the point of this conference is to, to share examples of this and to look at how we can embed this work even more strongly going forwards, particularly in light of the constantly shifting political climates that policymakers are currently working in. Yeah, well, I, I, as you say, there is so much good happening. And I think the fact that the summit is happening is a very positive thing. It is on from the 28th of November to the 1st of December, the Global Culture Summit. You can find out more at uclg-culturesummit2023.org. Daisy Fancourt, Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at University College London. Thank you very much for coming on and good luck with your keynote speech. Alive and kicking on News Talk. 
You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, how good are you with boundaries? How often do you say the word no? Virginia Foley is a business coach and she's encouraging us all to rename this month or whatever is left of it, November, and carry it on for the rest of the year and beyond with an emphasis on the word no. She joins me on the line now. Virginia, how are you? Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm good. Where did the idea for, for this come from? Well, it started about, I'm running this for four years now, and though we use the November time, it really was in my own life, November was the kind of the start of the race up to Christmas. But I'll be honest with you, I'm using it so that people remember it all year long, you know. So in my own life, busy mom, two young kids, the school stuff was kicking off up to Christmas, the Christmas shows, the work, the end of year stuff. The diary was just packed with things, you know which isn't a bad thing, but especially for women, I just felt I was being pinched everywhere that by the time Christmas actually arrived and landed, I was exhausted. So I I remember saying, I need to actually put some boundaries in here for myself to not keep saying yes to everything. And the more conversations I had with women, I work with women all the time, obviously, but the more conversations both in work and outside of work, we were all what I call shooting our pants, like should I should go here, I should do this, I should say yes, even with family things. I should show up for this thing. But all of our body is telling us, oh, God, you know. So, like, it's just really about me tuning into my own needs, I guess, and prioritizing them. But the more conversations I had with people, this is obviously something we're all doing all year long. So it's really to just shift people's thinking and their mindset around putting their own needs first, you know. And why do we struggle to say no? I think it's the acceptance piece, you know, it's nearly back to tribal times that, you know, way back when you would be rejected out of the tribe. So I suppose we're, we're worried that we will let people down. And though that's a lovely thing to be empathetic and to be concerned about other people's feelings, we're often doing that at the cost of our own. So it's really about like reclaiming the power in the word, first of all, but like the immense power in reclaiming your time, your energy, your power, your own actual self-leadership whether you're working for yourself or just you know in any area of your life we're all kind of conforming and falling in with what others because I suppose we're afraid to be judged as well that's a huge part of it you know. And how do we know that we're tuning in correctly? I was at a a gig recently with Dermot Whelan and he was, you know, talking about his his, his mindfulness and, and, and meditation as, as he does and how we're all talking about how wrecked we are and how busy we are and that's how everybody talks. And he said, I bet there's loads of you here in the audience that when somebody said, are you going to that thing, lady? You thought, no, I'm wrecked. And there was a big mm-hmm. laugh in the audience and I saw a lot of people nod in agreement and I, and I kind of felt the same because sometimes you say that but yet when you push through you have a great experience so how do you know what the right things to say no to are yeah that's a great question and I I really bring it back to like no is a tool of integrity so like you're not just saying no I'm not going and maybe you'll sit there with FOMO but like if something doesn't align with your values and this isn't even big picture thinking it's just in the moment that moment before we let the words come out of our mouth, we already have a little hesitation sometimes. So yes, there's situations where you're just tired and you're, you're like, oh, I can't. And then you get there and it's amazing. But there's other situations that I say, like, I get JOMO. I get the joy of missing out sometimes that I go, gee, thank God I didn't actually 
dragging myself across the city to go to that thing, you know, I didn't miss much. So I suppose it's just really about listening to our whole bodies and listening to our nervous systems and not just listening from the head up of what we feel we should. So I suppose really the tool there is to decide, is it you're afraid of being judged if you don't go or are you protecting your energy that you're too tired to go? So that's really about whether you're honouring yourself or honouring other people. That's really the the decision maker for me anyways, you know. Yeah, giving it that time. Often we just say yes, yes, yes. And we don't take that moment of reflection to really look at what we've going on. I did it recently. I had such a busy weekend and I I never really took the time to look at it and realise that I'd said yes to a dinner on Friday night, yes to a party on Saturday, yes to something again on the Sunday, you know, and, and you're, you're just kind of burning yourself out in that way if you're not taking that time to truly look at what you have going on and consider that no might fit in there somewhere. You have a course Absolutely. on this on your website. And even though we're at the end of November, as you say, it's all year round and you're going to continue it running. And on it, you say that embracing the word no will help you unlock the life you dream of. And you really practice what you preach, Virginia. You've done this in your own life. You've gone from working in nine to five and juggling it all to finding a way of working that suits you. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's not about just telling other people what they should do. I had to literally go. I was in a nine to five job that was unfulfilling. And I was like, right, I have two choices. I can complain about this or I can actually do something about it and go and build something. Now, granted, that took a long time and a lot of learning and trying and failing but I suppose I'm encouraging people to just start. And like saying no was one of the first places I had to start with my own boundaries, with my own time. I only had the time when my kids were young. I only had the mornings from nine to two. And there's, look, there's loads of women and some of them are mothers, some of them are not. But there's women out there pushing buggies, pushing trolleys. And I, they're just, there's gold that's wasted in them. So I'm encouraging them to come back to yourself, bring in some boundaries and it's about self-awareness, really being more aware of what you're doing with your time because we're leaking our energy and our time into everything. I would much rather see women out there, you know, pushing their books, proposals, sales, putting their magic out into the world. And I was one of those women going, I want it all, but like I can't have a career and be a mother and be good at both of them and find that equilibrium. And then I decided actually you can. So the message behind all of what I do actually is about you can. But it's reminding myself along the way too, like that I don't have to conform. There is another way. And it's about waking up to what does my freedom look like? What does my happiness look like? And try to build something around that fulfillment. And I have to say, the side effect of all of that work, it was all around, it didn't start out to be about confidence, but it just gave me this natural confidence that I could sit in my own skin and be okay with my own decisions. And I really want other women to have that same power, you know, and it's, It's not about taking over the world, but it's about taking over and taking ownership on your own time and the things that were were last on our list always, you know. So it's about putting yourself to the top of the list. You, if you start saying no, what you're going to do is you're going to make space for the right things that you want to say yes to then. And then we'll be able to jump. But like the majority of women that I speak to, be it literally from students to CEOs, they're all coming back with the same message, but there is no time I don't have the capacity to take on. I'd love to write a book. I would love to start an online course. I would love to start a podcast or a retreat. And it comes back to they don't have the capacity or the time. And when we start to 
I suppose, navigate or audit, well, where is there a bit of freedom? If you know this thing is the thing that lights you up, well, then that, that should be prioritised. And obviously, people have to make a living. That, that has to come into it. But the truth is that for most of the women that I work with, when we bring them back and align them to the things that actually light them up and they get to use those divine gifts that they have and further master other gifts, they end up making money is never the focus, but it's always the outcome. You know, when people get to do more of what they love, everybody benefits, but there's also a financial satisfaction that comes with that as well, you know. And are men better at doing this than women? Is that why, because of your personal experience, you've chosen to work more with women? Well, I just found that the things, the fires that I've walked myself through and the particular challenges that I've come through, one of them being that juggle between career and children, I don't feel that men have to compromise as much or maybe have to, and it's not to say men versus women, but the truth and the facts are that men aren't challenged to lose their identity as quickly as women are. And that's really where the deep roots of my work begin, you know, how people see themselves is really how their results play out. So women end up having to see themselves differently because their body changes, their mind changes, everything changes when you become a mother, the focus changes. So inevitably, they have to kind of reinvent or revisualize what they want. And that's that's the key thing. It's really the women who get who really get on well with this are the ones who are willing to to reinvent themselves or to re reevaluate. But they can be both. They can be a fantastic parent and they can also run a business, lead in a company or do whatever work that lights them up, you know. Yeah, well, if you want to find out more about Virginia's work and perhaps start with that course, The Power of Saying No, you can go to her website. It's riseacademy.ie. Virginia Foley, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Claire, for having me. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, does the term eating well bamboozle you? Do you get confused by the different labelling or really know whether or not you can trust a supplement? Sarah Burton is a nutritional therapist at supplement distributor Natural Life and she joins me in studio now to help us make sense of it all. Sarah, you're very welcome. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me on. And look, we hear all the time that good nutrition, the advice is very simple, but it can be really confusing for people, can't it? Yeah. Definitely. There's loads of kind of mixed information. And I think it's just to remember, you know, make small changes, bring it back to a few things we can change and keep it going rather than following fad diets and listening to removing whole food groups from our diet. Something that we can maintain is going to mean more to our body, you know, in the long run. Because there's so much messaging out there. I remember myself starting to present this show thinking, God, I'm overwhelmed by the health message. Um, I was confused by food labelling. I was throwing things in my basket because it said paleo with no real understanding of what paleo meant. I didn't know whether I was supposed to be eating dairy, cutting dairy. Was I plant based? Was I eating meat? And then you're getting into it from a health and wellness level. Then you're getting into it thinking about the planet. And after a while, you're like, oh, my God, I just want to hide under the duvet. Whereas really, we're talking about we really need to eat every day and making choices that are going to make us feel the best we can. Yeah, 
and most of us are helping to feed a family. So it's all fine having particular choices, um, but we have to make it maintainable. So like you said, with the, the food labels is one. Some people probably don't even notice, don't even look at the food labels. And quite often we're creatures of habit. We'll buy the same things every week. So that's definitely a tip to try and get one new fruit or vegetable every week. Buy a different bread buy a wholemeal pasta if you're having white pasta. But back to the labels, if you look on the front, you'll see the traffic light system. So you have your red, orange, green. Um, and look, and they're usually for your um, your calories, the levels of fat, sugar and salt. So if something's in that red category, that nutrient. So, for example, if it's salt, you know, that's above kind of the recommended level for that food. So if you're eating foods that are in the red zone all day long, chances are you're getting over that teaspoon of salt that we is the highest level we, we should be getting in a day. It's not a target, you know, Claire, we don't have to get that teaspoon. And it can be very easy through the day in particularly processed foods to get that high level. So um, I often say to people like like when we're using the international numbers, the plus three, five, three, three, five, three, if you can remember that. So we need less than three grams of our um, of our fats. We need more than five grams of our um, the proteins and less than three grams of our salt. So it's really important. Just look at the colouring. You know, we don't have to have a degree to, to understand these, but the colours are there to help us. So if it's something in the amber, it's 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 kind of in the middle of the road. You know, we could have one or two of these foods, but the green really is, is the area we should be aiming for having more foods in the green. I'm going to confess, I've never noticed the traffic light system. Yeah. I'm looking at producer John here. He's shaking his head <laughs> as well. I've never seen that. But yeah. what I will say is, for me personally, I have just begun to live life without food rules. But okay. I really have a focus on foods as natural as they can possibly be. Absolutely. And I count nutrients. I don't count calories. So I'm, I'm the same. When I studied nutritional therapy, it's not about counting calories. People can get obsessed. And that comes from the 80s and even early 90s. You drive yourself demented going around trying to figure out. And I know we've apps for everything, but no, what we studied in college is it's in a diet of abundance of the most different types of food, the most colour that you can get in there. Um, and no one food just has one nutrient. So, you know, I talk a lot about flax seeds. So they're little powerhouses. You've got omega-3, you've got fibre, you've magnesium, you've got protein, you've omega oils. They've all of these nutrients together. And then if you add them, obviously, to like porridge or yogurt, you're getting more fibre, you're getting carbs. So it's it's that complete completeness, as you say. We're all busy, you know, and you don't want to beat yourself up because you think you haven't had enough um, of a particular food group. So so really looking at the foods that would give us lots of nutrients um, is, is the most beneficial. Yeah, and I think it can become, like dare I say it, nearly fun or more positive anyway than the negative negative. Yes. What am I cutting out? What am I not allowed? What are bad foods? If you start thinking about what am I adding in? I often yeah. get the example of the bowl of porridge, like you say, and then I'm adding in berries, I'm adding in cinnamon, I'm adding yeah. in seeds. And all of a sudden, there's now eight things in that bowl. Yeah. All of them are good for me. And I'm like, nice one. Yeah. And I just think that's a, a better way to be and yeah. to live. And I love that you're you're saying that. But I will keep an eye out for those traffic light yeah, stickers. Yeah, do. On my like food. you said, with the porridge, my mum always says to me, my God, you'd nearly need a knife and fork to eat it. I do have, like you, that many different <laughs> things in there. It's not as, as glue, you know, 
um, more liquid. It's it's whatever berries I have, nuts. Then you can tick the list. You've got loads of them done for the day as well, if you're, especially if you're eating out later in the day or something. Yeah, I love that. And that there's a place for all foods, you yeah. know, and that, of course, we're going to go and bring a takeaway, get a pizza, yeah, go away to. for dinner, order chips. Like that's the yeah. way of life. Absolutely. Um, the busy evening when there's sports you know, uh, things going on, the treat at the weekend. It's the 80-20 rule. We have to, you know, have a balance. But there's loads of little food swaps, like simple things that people can do, you know, because I find often we can stand here and say this is good and this is not good. And we don't want people listening to think, oh, I don't really like that food. I hate porridge. I hear often from childhood. So maybe, you know, if you're having pasta sauce or you're making up your own, you can hide some vegetables. But quite often if we're eating out, go for the more tomato-based sauce. It's going to be better for you than those creamy, rich sauces. Maybe they've added some cheese, they've added the white wine and, you know, they're they're more um, calorie laden. I know we're not counting them, but the tomato-based sauce is always going to be better. Swap out the whole, um, the white and include your whole meal, your whole grain, pasta, your rice, your bread. You'll just feel fuller. You'll feel more sustained by them. Always as well, we're, lots of people are crazy on smoothies and things. And I know coming the new year, it'll be the, the, the crazy buzzword. But maybe try eat the fruit. It's always better to eat the fruit than drink our fruit. And if you are doing smoothies, do try put the greens. So you have a little bit more veg in there. That You've got the greens, you've got the veg. And you can obviously add a bit of fruit for that sweetness and taste. But just mixing up loads of different fruits, it, it's hitting, it's spiking the blood sugars really quickly. So while it's less processed than having sweet treats and a fizzy drink, you're still getting quite high sugar, a sugar spike. So by putting those greens or, you know, something like spirulina, those um, powders, protein powders, that, that will just kind of curb that down a little bit and you get more sustained energy from it. Yeah. And that's really what it's all about. It's not about counting calories or weight loss. Yeah. It's about giving you energy and how you feel Absolutely. in your body. I mean, obviously, there's other physiological benefits like yeah. your immune system, yeah. your mood, all of these things and you, your body functioning at its best. But that's when you feel at your best. Absolutely. And once you feel better, you know, it'll affect because you'll sleep better. You want to socialise more. You know, studies have shown people that don't sleep as well. The next day they make the wrong food choices, you know, and it can be a vicious circle if you've made the wrong food choices. I often say when we do talks, if you eat beige, you feel beige. And it kind of makes sense. You know, if you if we have lots of fruits and vegetables or we eat out, we, if we can't get access to all these foods all every day at home um, and you see the colour on your plate, you know, you even feel happy. You can't wait to eat it. But we've had the days where we've had maybe croissant pastries or chips or something and past, or pizza. And you don't. You might either feel hungry quicker after it or you just feel sluggish and tired. So, yeah, <laughs> the colour is better. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is. And what about you then, Sarah? How did you get to do what you do? Yeah, well, I suppose I, I always loved health, um, biology in school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So um, I thought it was dietetics. And when I did my leave insert, I was looking to do dietetics, didn't get the points, but I'm actually glad now. Um, and I went and I did nutritional science, was which was a little bit less but in points, but was quite varied. So you could get into lots of areas. So I did that in UCC. And at the end, some of my friends did go into dietetics, 
But I did some work experience and I just found it quite you know, one diet fits all, a bit more restrictive, seeing people in hospital being tube fed and maybe more chronic illnesses. I found it a little bit sad. I just felt I don't know if I can work at this and give it my all for years. So with nutritional therapy, when I studied that after my degree, I love that that is working kind of one on one. So like you, Claire, if you're coming to see me and you've got irritable bowel or, you know, you've problems with your immune system and autoimmune condition, you're different to the next person. You've got a different genetic makeup. You've got a different case history. You know, you've different eating pattern, different immunity. So all of that's taken into fact. It's factored in and you would get quite a unique program to follow. Um, so I just I loved kind of working with people and on the education side as well to kind of help people make small changes to kind of maintain and improve their health as well. So and what about your work now with natural life? Because yeah. supplements can get a, a really bad rap, can't they? And the market is so saturated. It Absolutely. can again be confusing for people. Yes. Yes, haven't worked actually along the way in between all there. Um, I worked in three different health shops, so I was used to the customer coming in, self-diagnosing, not sure what they needed with lots of people with similar types of symptoms. You know, as we've talked about stress, immunity, skin, digestion, similar types of problems. Um, And I just when the opportunity came up to work with Irish brands like Clean Marine, Irish Botanica, and the one nutrition they do. I just I loved their products. All the health shops I worked in would have sold their products. They're really reputable, good, strong levels. They do their own research, a lot of capsules over tablets. So there aren't the, the binders and fillers. So I suppose the message for, for people is to do a bit of their own research. Know what you're taking. You know, if you're taking cheaper supplements and it's not always about price, But if you're buying them just in a supermarket or online where you're not sure about the company and the ethics of where they're coming from, if they're tested, because some of these compounds can be tainted, you know, with with heavy metals, with um, bacteria. So you really need to know what you're taking, where you're buying it from, that the company have taken that care, you know, to to ensure the product the customer gets gets is of the highest standard. And are there supplements you would recommend for people, as you've mentioned, with just the the kind of people you see, everybody's different, as you mentioned, and there'll be different needs for different people. But are there some that we should all consider taking? Yeah. And always before anybody starts taking anything, you know, herbal or with vitamins, because they do work. They are powerful. Check if you are taking long term medication with your GP first, because, you know, quite often people go into a health food shop and just buy something, but they may be taking a medication doing a similar job or a very opposite job that they, they need to be careful. But yeah, I find for general busy life in the last number of years, B vitamins, so our busy bees, as we call them, they're really important for helping us get our energy from our food. And they're water soluble as well, Claire. So we might think, brilliant, I'd broccoli, I'd kale, I'd spinach today. But our body will soak that all up and use it. But anything we don't use, if we even get it enough, it will remove it in the urine later in the day. So then you have to start all over again tomorrow. So those kind of nutrients, your your uh, B vitamins, which are in the whole grains, the greens, the broccoli, um, those types of foods, 
um, the brightly coloured um, greens and the, and, the, and the purples in our fruits and vegetables, they're really important. So definitely to, to maybe supplement with them when your body is a lot of needs for energy. So you're sporty, you're stressed, you know, we're, we're busy on the go people. Um, they can be one of the first ones to show little telltale signs when we start getting tired and fatigued, getting mouth ulcers, little cracks around your mouth, feeling just exhausted and emotional and everything. So um, omega-3, we hear lots about that. So that's, you know, I'm making sure you have a really good sustainable source um, of of your omega-3 that's really absorbable. There's no point in taking one and your body's kind of, it's repeating and your body can't use it properly. So, you know, it's back to eating our oily fish and nuts and seeds because it's always food first. You know, there's no point in going down to the, the health food shop and buying loads of supplements, but you're not eating well because the, the foods will give you so much. much um, as I say, the colour is full of uh, polyphenols, antioxidants, all these other compounds too. But we're not all. Are we all eating fish three times a week? Because some people say once a week, I have it on Fridays, maybe, you know, more traditional households. Or I know in my house, many people don't like fish, so I end up not having it as much myself. Um, so three times a week is what we need to be getting our recommended level. And it's it's quite impossible, you know, with busy lives. Um, I'm sure bringing fish in here for lunch, everyone w- wouldn't be too happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it is it is hard to get enough in there. Um, so Omega-3, something like Clean Marine's a good sustainable source. So do your research on your brands. Things like magnesium are very popular at the minute. Men and women find them really um beneficial it's 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 a nutrient that's deficient in about 70% of irish people so quite often people might not realize they need it but it's when you take it you think wow uh, i've just feel again tiredness fatigue muscles people exercising getting cramps getting um that kind of restless leg feeling um, yeah, so many aspects of our body. It's it's a muscle relaxant. So we know we, we exercise and calcium helps our muscles contract. But if we don't have enough magnesium to help them relax, they can stay in that kind of overexcited stage that we, we get that crampy feeling. Um, quite often, I know I got them in pregnancy, quite often I'd have to stand out at the side of the bed and that would have been a time I knew my body w- was lower in it, but people exercising quite often, people having problems with sleep, it helps to, to maintain a better healthy sleep pattern. And then things like ashwagandha, lots of people are, are, are finding um, different herbs and different compounds very, very helpful with managing stress response in the body. Men and women, we find lots of people reporting back to us that are visiting the gym and doing exercise they find their bodies recovering better. Um, yeah, that that it's really helping that stress response. And I think since COVID, definitely a lot more people are taking some supplements, definitely through the winter time, to really help support their body at this time. Yeah, well, vitamin D certainly got a vitamin good marketing D, campaign throughout COVID, didn't <laughs> yes. it? You're studying herbal medicine now, which is just another indicator of what nature can provide <laughs> for us. Absolutely. It was probably my first love. Um, and I went on and did nutrition first. I actually don't even know why. I loved both. Um, 
And definitely like growing up, I remember, and I'm only 42, my mom cooking nettles and having different kind of herbal teas and things. Um, yeah, and just the more I was reading about it and working in health food stores, talking to other people who'd studied herbal medicine, it's so powerful to help just give that balance back, not necessarily to, to treat anything in particular, but really helping um, to support our body for immunity, for digestion. Um, yeah, the, the plants are really powerful. And you some people take them in a tea, which is a really easy way, you know, to, to, to get them and incorporate them in. You can take them in powder form. Tincture would be one of the strongest ways. So it's mixed with a little bit of alcohol and water to extract out more of those active ingredients and for it to work faster in the body. Wow. So you've just got a real love for this. This, yeah. is, this is your passion. Yeah. And I, I started studying the herbal medicine. Um, my little youngest boy was probably only a couple of weeks old when I said, I'll sign up, I'll do this course. But I kind of like to be continually doing something. And in this area, it's definitely um, ever changing and more information's always come into the fore. Um, and that's why I love working with these Irish brands, because they're constantly thinking of new ideas and products and how to make them better. Um, and it's really nice to, to kind of have that trust that I'm involved and part of that as well. Well, people can check out Natural Life and all of the supplements that they distribute. And Sarah Burton, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Claire. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen, to John Byrne and to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.